Uh, this morning he's going to be preaching from Romans, and so I want you to turn there. Romans, uh, he'll be in chapter 12, but we're going to read starting in chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is where we'll be, I'll be reading. I'll read Romans chapter 11, verse 29, all the way down to chapter 12 uh, in verse 2. Follow along as I read. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray with me, please. Father, we do not take lightly the privilege we have to look at your word. We're thankful. We know that it is true. In a world where we are accosted by lies, we thank you that we can come together and look into the book that you have preserved for us that is completely and totally true. It's now change us through that truth. We pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever received a gift from someone that was so unexpected, perhaps so valuable in nature, that it just completely took you by surprise? Maybe the gift was from someone that wasn't a very close friend. Or perhaps it came from somebody you might think might be more angry at you than generous with you. Or maybe the bar for gift giving was just much lower in your mind and it totally blew that standard out of the water. Probably all of us have participated in a gift exchange at Christmas time. How many of you actually like those, the gift exchanges? Right? You know how it goes, you know the rules. There's usually a set uh, amount you're supposed to, to spend, like 20 bucks, and then inevitably there's always somebody who goes out and spends like 400 bucks, and he makes everybody else look like a total loser, um, and then everybody looks like a cheapskate. All the rules were clear up front, but he just had to go and spend all that money. Sometimes gifts are worth more because of the thought behind the action, and sometimes the thought combined with the value makes the gift all that more appreciated. A few years ago, my wife and I had the privilege and were surprised by a couple in our church who gave us a weekend away in Boston because they wanted to make sure that we didn't burn out in ministry. Uh, it was completely unexpected and something that we would have never justified doing for ourselves. 
And yet Callie and I still count that as one of the best times that we've ever spent together. Maybe you have a story of like that like your, of your own. But there's a level of giving that is so much greater than these examples. And it's of infinite value. And the passage we're looking at today comes immediately after this lavish display of affection. More than most passages, any fruitful look at Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 requires us to know what has come before it. In just a few minutes, I would like to give a few of the highlights that Paul has already taught us from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11. Now hold on to your seats. I understand you're thinking this could take by far the rest of the time, if not the rest of the week. But I assure you, it will be just a couple minutes. In Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, Paul gives some pretty bleak news. He shows that every single human being is a sinner who's separated from God and thoroughly corrupt. We demonstrate our sinfulness by worshiping the things that God created instead of God the creator himself. And as a result, God gives us over to our own sins. His wrath is displayed by allowing our minds to become perpetually depraved so that we can no longer understand right from wrong. The end of this path is eternal separation from God in the torment of hell. You say, that's not good news, Pastor Nate. The great thing is that the good news comes as soon as the second half of Romans chapter 3. Because God reveals that since we could never, ever earn the favor of God himself, he instead gives us his very own righteousness if we place our faith in Jesus alone. And by doing this, God justifies people who are guilty and deserving of punishment by placing that punishment on Jesus and giving us his righteousness by faith. Chapter 4 tells us that that faith in Jesus always has been and always will be the only way to God. There's no other way to God. And that brings us to chapters 5 through 8, where Paul lays out the unbelievable benefits of being justified by God. I want you to listen to a few of these incredible blessings, because this is exactly what I was talking about when we receive gifts so undeserving, so unexpected. Listen to some of these. Although we were enemies with God, we're now at peace with him. We have direct access to God's throne by prayer to receive grace from him. We rejoice in the knowledge that one day we will be glorified with God. He gives us the ability to rejoice in suffering because we know that he is working through our circumstances to produce benefits in our lives that bring glory to him. We're saved from God's wrath. We just sang about that. And even though we sin countless times, Jesus' sacrifice in our place brings us from death to life. So now we're dead to sin and alive to God. Sin no longer reigns over us. We don't have to slave for that cruel tyrant. And although the law condemns us, we are set free from the condemnation of the law by being in Christ. We have union with Christ so that our resurrection is certain. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and gives us life. And now we're led by the spirit who prays for us when we don't know what to pray. 
we've been adopted to receive the inheritance of all of God's riches as his heirs. God works everything together for our good and for his glory. Nobody can stand against us, charge us with wrong, or condemn us because God didn't even spare his own son to justify us. And folks, nothing can separate us from God's love. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation. Absolutely nothing else can separate us from God's love. In chapters 9 through 11, God proves that he keeps his promises. And so we have no reason to doubt that these grand and glorious benefits of being justified are guaranteed. Now folks, if you come into the service today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't say that God is holding back from you. He has showered his grace upon us to a degree that is incomprehensible to our limited minds. And with all of this mercy and grace in mind, we come to chapter 12, where Paul begins this way. Look down with me, please. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now notice Paul uses the word therefore, and he uses it to point back to chapters 1 through 11, everything that he set up to this point, and to explain why he wrote all of that. He has laid out the most logically driven and dense theological treatise of any of his letters in the New Testament. But to what end, Paul? Why'd you give us all this theology? Was it so that, so that the Romans would have the biggest theological brains of anybody in the world? Was it so that we could study today and say, we're so great because we know all this stuff about God and what he's done? Actually, Paul says that he has written all of this to make an appeal to us. The word he actually uses is somewhere between a request and a command. Sometimes in church we call this an exhortation. And Paul gives the who, the why, and the what of this exhortation. Who? Paul makes this exhortation to brothers. Every single believer, every Christian, including you and me, he's making this exhortation to us. Why? He gives the appeal on the basis of God's mercies. Now, what mercies are we talking about, folks? We're talking about the incredible list that we just rehearsed a minute ago. All of those things, mercies. Because of those things, everything God has done for you, therefore do this. Now, do what, Paul? Paul appeals to us to do two things. And first of all, God's grace motivates and empowers me as a believer to present my body as worship to God. Now let's look at the rest of verse 1 we didn't read earlier. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul tells us that in light of God's mercies, we should present our bodies as a sacrifice. Now, it's important that we understand a few basic background things before we move on. When Paul uses the term bodies, he doesn't just mean our flesh and bones. He means our entire being, 
Our entire person is to be sacrificed. This certainly includes our physical bodies, but it also means so much more. Now, Doug Moo wrote one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans, and he points this out. He says, it's not only what we can give that God demands. He demands the giver. God doesn't just want us to give some token back to him for all that he did for us. He wants us. Also, when Paul calls on us as believers to present our bodies as a sacrifice, he doesn't mean a sacrifice in the way that we use that word in our normal American lingo, right? To Paul and the Romans, a sacrifice is not going without Oreos for the season of Lent or getting the basic cable package instead of the deluxe one in order to save some money. That's not the sacrifice he's talking about. The terminology of sacrifice was common in Paul's days, both to the Jews and also to the pagan nations, because they used to offer sacrifices on an altar to appease God's wrath, or in the case of the pagans, to appease a God's wrath. And it's important for us to realize that with the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, he offered once and for all the final physical sacrifice required to appease God's holy and just wrath against mankind. Notice what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So it's clear from this verse that God does not expect us to offer our physical bodies as a physical sacrifice to him. Instead, Paul includes three descriptions of the sacrifice in this verse. And in the language that Paul wrote the letter, the three descriptions are all listed immediately after the word sacrifice. So it reads like this. He says, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. So let's consider these so that we can understand exactly what God is calling us to do. First, a living sacrifice. While it's true that animal sacrifices would have been made to God, and they would have all been living when they were brought to the altar, none of them would have left the altar that way. Every single one of them would have been slaughtered as a vital part of the process. God doesn't require that same thing of us. He isn't asking us to die physically. Instead, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Folks, I want us to understand this. While it is a noble thing for us to give our lives for the faith, meaning to die for the faith, it's even harder to give up your man-centered desires to live for him every single day. Paul has described mankind in chapter 1 as those who refuse to worship the true God and instead worship things that that true God has created. And folks, isn't, in our culture, isn't this truth played out so clearly? I mean, we worship our work. We do whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder so that we can make more money, so that we can consume it on our own desires. And when we're done with our work, we come home and we plop down on the couch in front of Netflix and we watch hours and hours of shows and make ourselves more and more comfortable as we buy bigger and bigger TVs and softer and softer couches. Right? We worship comfort. 
we endeavor to retire as early as possible so that we can spend more and more time amusing ourselves and making ourselves comfortable. And here Paul is calling us to go against our culture and be different. God has given everything to me so I can give my life to him. Now this isn't the first time that Paul has used this kind of language in his letter to the Romans. Back in chapter 6, Paul says in verses 17 to 19, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Folks, before God saved us, we were slaves to our sin. And our sin nature is a cruel tyrant. We once had no say in the matter of whether we would sin or not. But Paul explains in this chapter that when God saved us, we died with Christ so that we would now live as totally different people. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And when Paul calls on us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, he is calling us as people who once were dead but now are truly alive. We have spiritual life that allows us to slave for God who is the most benevolent master. So what does it look like to present your body as a living sacrifice? It looks like a person who joyfully slaves for the most benevolent and gracious king who has given everything to us. And we now live in everlasting gratitude for the mercies that he has shown us. So let's take this down to earth. As I look around the room this morning, I'm making the assumption that most of us have placed our faith in Christ alone to save us. I'm certain there are probably some in here who haven't. But I'm going to say probably most of us have. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, the majority here make an effort to go to church regularly, or do other things that we see as things that Christians do, like read our Bibles and pray and, and other things like that. And of course, these things don't save us, and they don't make God love us any more than he already does. They are faithful responses to a God who has given everything for us, and they should be characteristic of believers. But what Paul is talking about here is even more fundamental than just spiritual practices. He's talking about centering our whole lives around the God who redeemed us. Everything that we are, everything that we have. We don't just carve out an hour or two to attend a worship service each week to meet some spiritual requirement. We don't just read our Bibles for five to ten minutes a day to satisfy some spiritual standard. We decide that since God has given everything to us, we don't buy our houses to be comfortable in them. We buy them to use as tools to further the kingdom of God. We have people over for meals to channel the same love that God has shown to us to others. 
and we open our homes for groups of believers to come over and pray and study the Bible together because our relationship with God is so much bigger than just what happens on Sunday morning. Now, if our houses aren't HGTV showpieces of modern design and ultra-cleanliness, that's okay. We're not having people over to impress them. We're having people over to grow together in Christ-likeness. And our homes aren't for our own comfort. They're for building the kingdom of God. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices means that we don't live for our own comfort, but to serve others as Christ did. Fathers, since God has given everything to you, do you take the time to lead your wife and your children to know and love Christ? Now you might say, I bring them to church every week, and that's a good thing, a good start. But if we think that we can pawn off the discipleship of our family to the church, we're gravely mistaken. We don't teach our families that Christ is everything to us merely by showing up at church once a week. We present our bodies as living sacrifice by taking the time necessary to point our families to Christ every single day. This includes reading the Bible together as a family, but it doesn't stop there. It means taking the time to highlight God's goodness to our children in the little things in life. It includes apologizing to our wives when we hurt them and recommitting to loving them as Christ loved the church. It includes modeling a love for Christ by making sure that time spent worshiping him and growing together with the body of Christ is our family's priority over the many other things that are crying out for our attention today. Paul calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but notice that he also calls us to present our bodies as a holy sacrifice. Now that word holy means set apart. Set apart from sin and set apart for God's purposes. Our response to God's mercy to us is not to go on living the same kind of lives before we were saved. We used to slave for sin. So that meant we used to gossip about people behind their backs and constantly complain. And folks, Paul is not shy about this. Notice what he says in Philippians 2, 14 to 18. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice this terminology here. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Holiness means that our mouths are set apart from sin and for God's purposes. We don't participate in complaining anymore because God has called us to be blameless in the midst of a culture that has no problem complaining. In this kind of culture, our example is supposed to shine as a light. Paul even uses the same kind of sacrificial terminology. Did you notice that? 
This passage here in Philippians, the same kind of terminology that he uses in Romans, in which his entire being is being poured out as a sacrifice to God. Living as a person who is thankful among coworkers who complain is a practical outworking of presenting your body as a holy sacrifice to God. Holiness also means that our time is spent, set apart from the world for God's purposes. It's so easy for us to fill up our schedules every single day with endless things, with school, sports teams, jobs, you name it. And a big reason why it's so easy to do this is because these things aren't necessarily wrong. These are good things. The problem is when we become so busy with our sports that we neglect God's call for us to grow together or serve others or reach the world. We should all desire to see our children developing academically in school. But that academic development doesn't trump the spiritual development that must happen in our lives as we foster relationships with other believers that are deep enough to spur one another on to spiritual growth. And folks, if you notice what Paul's saying here, it's only when we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice and a holy sacrifice that it is an acceptable sacrifice to God. When we hold back in giving God control of everything, that's not an acceptable response to God's giving everything to us. When our actions are indistinguishable from an unbeliever's actions, that's not an acceptable response to God's calling us to live as those set apart for his purposes. If you look at the end of verse 1, Paul says that this act of offering yourself to God as a sacrifice is your spiritual worship. When we were looking at what it means to offer our bodies as a sacrifice earlier, I mentioned that Christ's death on the cross fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system and put an end to physical burnt offerings. But in 1 Peter 2.5, Peter explains that we now offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Notice what Peter says here. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This means that we worship God by giving him everything that we are in response to his giving everything to us. Our offering up our lives in priorities to him is a way that we worship him and declare to the world that slaving for God is better than slaving for our sins. We don't just worship God by showing up to worship services week after week. We worship God by giving him free rule over our schedules to do with them as he pleases. There is no compartment of our lives about which we say to God, hands off. We give it all to him. Well, not only does God's grace motivate and empower me to present my body as worship to God, but it also motivates and empowers me to be transformed to know and do God's will. Look down with me, please, at verse 2. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Part of what it means to present your body as worship to God is fleshed out in what we see here in the second verse. There isn't a rigid distinction between the body that Paul calls for in verse 1 and the mind that he talks about in verse 2. They're intimately connected. That means that if God wants us to offer our bodies to him, that includes our minds as well. God doesn't just want thoughtless worship of him. He wants it to come from the inside out. Notice how he begins by telling us what we shouldn't do. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Now the word translated as world here literally means age. Don't allow yourself to be conformed to the spirit of the age. Now I'm going to guess that most of us in here, if you've heard preaching on this passage before, you've probably heard it said, because it's commonly said, don't allow yourself to be squeezed into the world's mold. Right? But the question we should be asking is, how does this happen? Or, what would it look like for the world to squeeze me into its mold? I think we would all agree that this has happened when our actions are virtually indistinguishable from any unbeliever. If we look, act, talk exactly like somebody who's unsaved, this has probably happened. But conformity to this age is so much more insidious than that. We need to realize that every single show on Netflix that we watch has a worldview. And that worldview is communicated through ways that are often very subtle. We may notice a person who has foul language and tell ourselves, well, I shouldn't speak like that if I want to honor God. Okay, that was pretty clear. But we may not always notice how the creators of the show shape the story to make us sympathize with somebody who breaks the law or somebody who commits adultery, for example. And by the end of a few seasons of having this worldview presented to us, we may even begin to justify adultery in certain occasions and see other sins as permissible if the right circumstances happen. Repeated exposure to the mindset of this age, if unchecked in our lives, will lead us to become conformed to the world. And you might be sitting here today thinking, I would never commit adultery. That's just not me. I'm not going to do that. But if you think it's okay to dream about what it would be like if you were married to someone else, you're deceiving yourself into thinking that your thoughts don't eventually produce actions. And... Furthermore, you're deceiving yourself into believing that your thoughts aren't part of an offering everything that you are as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Folks, our thoughts matter. And if we aren't careful, we'll be taken captive by the spirit of this age and every single one of us has this happen to us to some degree or another. Every one of us in this room at times reasons and makes decisions based on false messages that we have imbibed from the spirit of this age. Take for example, as Tom Rainer would say, we treat our church membership like membership in a country club, Right? As long as we pay our dues, we should be taken care of and our preferences should be honored. 
But in truth, we belong to a body of believers in order to serve and build that body up with the spiritual gifts that God has given us to for the benefit of others and for his own glory. We justify treating other people poorly by saying, well, they deserved it. In truth, God sent his son to die in our place because we all deserve eternal punishment for our actions. And he did this not because we deserved his salvation, but because of his love. And he now calls us to preach and love to others in the same way. We desire to sin, and we rationalize that sinful act by saying, well, that would really make me happy. And God loves me, and he wants me to be happy, right? Of course God loves us. And God desires for us a joy that is far greater and lasting than any fleeting happiness that we receive from sinning. We find far greater joy in offering ourselves as a sacrifice, living holy and acceptable to him. So, how do we avoid being conformed to the spirit of this age? Paul gives us the positive command next. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If we want to avoid having our minds be taken captive by the thought processes of this world, they need to be renewed. Or maybe using a word that we often use in terminology today, our minds need to be renovated. Over the last 10 years, HGTV has skyrocketed in popularity with its great selection of shows that depict the renovation of old homes. Right? Kitchen renovations bathroom renovations, whole home renovations. If you can renovate something, they've done it. People love to see an ugly house torn apart and then given new life. A crew comes in, they tear everything back to the studs, and they usually make a spectacle of it for TV by throwing like a toilet or a sink through a window, something you'd never actually do in real life because it's a huge mess to clean up. But it looks great on TV, and they get it all cleared out of everything. And you're left with nothing, an empty space. And then what do they do? They build it up. They give it new life. This is not altogether different from what needs to happen in our minds, folks. When God saves us, we are filled with the mindset of this age. And we think like lost people. Our values and priorities reflect people who love ourselves rather than God. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And folks, even as believers, we allow the messages of our world to creep into our minds. And Paul says here that we need to tear out these false messages and allow our minds to be built up with a completely new values and priorities. Now Paul doesn't explicitly tell us how this happens in this passage, but he gives us plenty of details in his other letters. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 3:18, he says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, there's that word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
when we behold God's glory, as we are confronted with it in his word, we are transformed, we are metamorphosized from one degree to the next. Consistent exposure to God's word and application of its principles to our lives causes growth in our lives that roots out the false messages of this age and builds us up in the truth. Notice what Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says it this way. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now you might be thinking, that sounds like a lot of work. Is it really worth it? What's really going to be gained by spending all that time reading and studying and applying the Bible? Paul tells us the reward for renovating your mind with the truth of God's word in the next phrase. He says this, that you may discern what is the will of God. In other words, when your mind is renovated by God's word, you are able to know what God wants you to do. On Sunday nights, we've been studying the topic of biblical ethics up here in in room 206. Now, we've just gotten started, but it is clear that there are a lot of complicated ethical questions that we confront in our normal lives. If our minds haven't been shaped by God's word, we are likely to make our decisions based on the prevailing wisdom of this age. And that mindset might contradict God's will. In fact, it probably will. For instance, if you don't value all humans as created in the image of God, you will see abortion or euthanasia as viable options. But if you study God's word by yourself, as a family, and with other believers, you will be able to discern God's will by testing, as he says here, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can hold up your opinions in life to the word of God like you would hold up a $50 bill in the light. As you look for a watermark on the bill, you see what options correspond to God's perfect moral will. And this entire process is an act of worship to God as you demonstrate to all who see your life that everything you are has been shaped by God for his purposes and glory. As we began this message in Romans chapter 1, we saw that mankind has rejected God and so God gave men over to a debased mind that is unable to discern between good and evil. That's exactly what we see in our culture today. No discernment between right and wrong. But this transformation is the reversal of this process in Romans 1 as God uses his spirit and his word to renovate our minds to be able once more to discern between what is right and what is wrong. Now, it'd be, it'd be very easy, folks, to walk away from a passage like this and just think, well, I've tried all that before. Just read your Bible more. I understand. Or I, just, I guess I just need to work harder. It's easy to just walk away from this message and say, that, that's all I've got to get from this. But if this is our conclusion, we're missing our means and our motivation. We're stripped of all the power. 
the only reason that we can give everything that we are in the first place is because Jesus has already given everything to us. That's the point. Remember the multitude of mercies that he has showered on us. Remember that he has already secured our righteousness. Remember that we have already received the power of the Spirit who indwells us, and we don't have to earn anything. Everything that we have talked about this morning is merely our joyful response to what God has already done for us. Because God has given everything to me, I must give everything I am to be shaped for his purposes and his glory. Now perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know God. It's possible that the mercies that I summarized from the earlier passages in Romans are unfamiliar to you because you've never trusted in Christ before. If this is the case, you can't present your body as a sacrifice of worship to God because you haven't had any of these mercies applied to your life yet. You're still slaving for sin rather than for righteousness. And if this is your scenario, the best news in all the world is that today your situation can change. If you believe that Jesus died in your place to take the punishment for your sins against God, and if you place your faith in Jesus alone to save you, today you're going to be saved. That's a guarantee and a promise that God makes to you today. And then you'll be able to look at every single one of those mercies that God has showered on believers and you will be able to read them with your name attached to them. And you will be able to give everything that you are to be shaped for his purposes and glory. And if that's your situation today, I invite you today, trust in Christ alone. No better decision in the world to make. And believer, if you're here today, look, God hasn't left you high and dry. He showered his mercies upon you. Let's covenant together as believers to offer our lives as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God by giving up everything that we are and everything that we have to be used for his purposes and his glory. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that today as we read these things, we don't need to be overwhelmed thinking that if we can't do this perfectly, somehow we're going to fall out of your good graces. Somehow our names will be scratched from the book of life. That will never happen. Our salvation wholly hinges on all of those mercies that you've already accomplished for us. Nothing will separate us from your love. And now we have the joyful privilege to serve you with everything that we have and everything that we are. So help us to do that, Father. I pray for our church that we would grow together this year and we would take advantage of opportunities to grow as families, to grow as small groups of believers huddled around the word of God, expecting your spirit to work as he applies your word to our hearts. And may you be glorified through these things. In Jesus' name we pray.